Good morning. My name's Todd. For those of you I don't know, I'm uh, glad that you're here this morning at uh, Hilton Head Island Community Church, especially for those of you who are visiting uh, with us today. We're glad that you're here. And uh, you are picking up with us right in the uh, middle of a series called Highly Unlikely. And we're studying the life of Moses, this great man of God. I was, uh, I was born in 1973. Gen Xers. Gen Xers, kind of an interesting term. We were defined by what we're not. We were defined by what we were expected to not accomplish in life. It's kind of an interesting thing to be a Gen Xer and to, you know, have to live up to those great expectations that they put on us. I mean, it should have been Gen question mark, you know. The previous generations were defined by things that they had gone through, things that they had done, maybe events that took place in the life of that generation. We had the generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, the World War I and World War II generation. I think that's an, a very good term that's placed on that generation. Would you agree with me that that is? That's an incredible generation. Those of you who are from that generation, we have a lot to be thankful for, for the sacrifice that you made. Then the next generation, the baby boomers, this huge influx of babies that were born Post-World War II, post-World War I, my parents are the baby boomers, and they were known for the great baby boom after those two wars. And then you come to us, Gen Xers, those who were born in the 60s and the 70s, and even some experts say through the 80s. We're not known for a whole lot. We're just not. Gen X, they didn't know what we'd do. They didn't know what we'd accomplish. And, you know, it's really interesting because we lived down to those expectations often, our, our generation. They just, we just do. But it's interesting, there's one thing that Gen Xers are really known for. If anything, we're known for gaming. We're known for games. Cynthia and I, in 1995, we were honeymooning in uh, Rhode Island. And uh, we looked up as we were kind of driving around Rhode Island, and we saw signs. We saw signs for the X Games. And we had no idea what the X Games were. Back in 1995, I say that like it was like generations ago, way back in 1995, the X Games didn't even exist. In fact, I learned much later in my life that what we were witnessing there in Rhode Island on our honeymoon was the inaugural X Games. Generation X started gaming. They, they, they took new sports, BMX, biking, downhill, skiing, all, all kind of different sports, and they put them to games because our generation is obsessed with games. I mean, Atari. Do you guys remember Atari? Does anybody remember Atari? How about in television? I had an Intellivision in my house, okay? Pac-Man, Pong. Do you remember Pong? I grew up with a little green game in my hand. It was a football game. And you directed little dots, red dots, across a board that was pretty undefined to score. That was the gaming generation. That's what we're known for is gaming. And as I thought about it, I thought about the fact that my generation, Gen X, is known for gaming. And I think that we're known for gaming for a variety of different reasons. I think first it's to prove to the world that we were successful at something. To prove to the world that we could do something with our generation with our lives. And so we became obsessed with games. Rubik's Cube. Experts say that this is the number one selling toy of all times, if you can believe that. 
we became experts at gaming. I think another reason that we uh, uh, were obsessed in my generation and are obsessed in my generation with gaming is not only did we want to prove that we weren't defined by X, but you know, we wanted to win at something. We wanted to have something that we won at. Our parents' generation, the baby boomers, they won at changing society, changing values in society. They, they won at business, the boom of the 1980s. My parents' generation, some of you are in that generation. You were very successful at those things. The generation before them, my grandparents' generation, they were successful at overcoming adversity. I mean, they survived the Great Depression. They were victorious in two different world wars. And then our generation, pretty much known for gaming, for something that we could cling to to be successful. And as I thought about Gen X and as I ponder this idea that we were really the ones who designed the whole idea of gaming, I thought about this. We wanted to be successful, but it wasn't just our generation, was it? It's a human condition. Our human condition is that we don't want to fail. We don't want to have anything that we're not good at. We don't want to have anything in our lives that we can't succeed at. We want to have something that we win at. We want to have something that we can say that we had influence upon. We want to have something that we say, yeah, I conquered that. I'm successful at that. My gifts are this, and I use them to influence society or culture or humanity or a neighbor or a friend or a family. We want to have success. And it's not just a Gen X desire. It's really a human desire. And when we come upon something that we're ill-equipped to do, when we come upon something that we can't figure out, it throws us off our game. We get bumped, we get nudged, and we get discouraged, and we become depressed. And that's a slippery slope to a lot of terrible things because we want to win. We want to be successful. And when we fail, we're faced and faced with our shortcomings. It shocks us to face our, face our deficiencies. You know, it's one thing to admit our weaknesses, to understand our limitations, to know what we're good at and focus our energy on those things that we excel in. But it's quite another, I want you to capture this, to use what we're not good at, what we can't figure out in our lives. It's a totally different thing to use those things to look at God, the creator of heaven and earth, the almighty strong one, and say, I can't help you. I can't do this. I'm weak in these areas, and I just can't figure it out. And I'm sorry, God, I can't help you. You see, when we don't follow God's commands and will for our lives, just because we're weak in some area or we lack experience or we have a feeling that we're not going to be good at it, when we do that, when God asks us to do something and we give him the I can't excuse, we're willfully disobeying God. We're willfully disobeying what he has asked us to do. As we're walking through this series called Highly Unlikely, we're taking a look at Moses' weaknesses. Often when we look at a biblical character, we look at the things he was strong in, but this great man of God had many different weaknesses. And today we're going to be taking a look at the weaknesses that he had in his skills and his experience in things that he was ill-equipped to do 
for God. You can take out your notes this morning when you came in, you were, you were given the notes. And I want to just hit this key point, this key thing right up front. It's this. This is the summary of everything we'll talk about today. God may be asking us to do things that we think are so much bigger than we are capable of doing ourselves. And we may even feel like we could break at any moment. However, if we are willing to be obedient and follow his leading in our lives, he will provide the strength, the ability, and the endurance to fulfill his plan for our lives. God may be asking us to do things that we think are so much bigger than we are capable of doing ourselves. We may feel so stretched that we feel like we're going to break at any moment. However, if we're willing to be obedient, if we're willing to follow his commands and his leading in our lives, he will provide the strength and the ability and the endurance to fulfill his plan for our lives. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Exodus. We're in the book of Exodus, and today we're going to be kind of going through Exodus 3 through uh, chapter, about chapter 7. As we take a look at the life of Moses, don't worry, it's not a four-hour sermon. We're not going to take an hour for each uh, chapter there, but we're going to be taking an overview and taking a look at another way that Moses was so unlikely, the story of God using Moses despite everything. God was so faithful with Moses despite his weaknesses. Now, the last time that we saw Moses last week, uh, he had come, he was born into poverty, he was born into the nation of Israel's weakest time. It was a dark day for the nation of Israel, and this little baby who was born as a Hebrew, as an, a part of the nation of Israel, was put in a basket for the first few months of his life. He was sent down the Nile River, and the Pharaoh's daughter found him and began to raise him. And he grew up literally in Pharaoh's palace. He grew up in the king's palace. And we see Moses as he watches uh, an Egyptian kill a Hebrew after he finds out that he was born born as a Hebrew, and he sees this Egyptian kill a Hebrew, he goes out and he kills the Egyptian. And he thinks no one's watching, which is what happens often when we do something that God tells us not to do. We think no one's watching, and there's always someone watching. And sure enough, someone's watching. And so all of a sudden, Pharaoh, who, who once loved Moses, all of a sudden, Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. And so Moses flees, and he goes out into the desert. And that's kind of where we left off last week, is Moses is out in the desert. He's out in the desert. Well, I'll bring you up to speed a little bit. At the end of chapter 2, Moses meets his wife out in the desert, Zipporah. And he meets his wife, and he begins working for his father-in-law. And so he's working for his father-in-law, and his father-in-law is a shepherd. And so his father-in-law, Jethro, puts Moses in charge of a certain amount of his sheep. So Moses becomes a shepherd. Now, one thing that's very interesting, one thing you may not know, you can kind of divide Moses' life up into three groups of 40. The first 40 years of his life was spent as obviously a baby born there uh, in Egypt as a, as a Hebrew and then raised in the palace of the Egyptian king, the pharaoh. So the first 40 years of his life, he grew up as a really son or grandson in the king's palace. And that's where he grew up. And at 40 years old was when he killed the Egyptian. And so then he flees into Midian, he flees into the desert, and he spends the next 40 years of his life out in the desert. See, he made that mistake back in Egypt by killing that Egyptian, and that cost him 40 years of his life. Isn't that incredible? And so Moses is in his 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, 
And all he does during that time, there's very little that we can find about Moses, biblically or in extra-biblical documents. All he does is he tends sheep. He's a shepherd. And so his interaction with people is really in the desert, and he's tending sheep. Well, one day, he's tending his sheep, and he takes them to a place called Mount Horeb, and an angel of God appears to Moses in the form of a what? Burning bush. But this is an interesting burning bush because it's not being consumed. And so Moses goes up to this burning bush, and all of a sudden, now not only an angel appears to him, but the voice of God Charlton Heston, remember that? Okay, the voice of God appears to Moses or speaks to Moses, and he says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place that you're standing is holy ground. And Moses immediately recognizes that this is God Almighty. And God has a very specific word for Moses. He tells Moses that he has come down to release his people from captivity. He's come down specifically for the sole purpose of taking the nation of Israel and releasing them from the captivity of the Egyptians. But here is the shocking statement to this now shepherd who's on the lamb in Midian. God says to Moses in chapter 3, in Exodus 3, verse 10, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Whoa. Really? Really? You're going to use me? Now, wait a minute. Think about Moses for a moment in this situation. He's just tending his sheep like he has done the past 39 years. And he's tending his sheep, and he goes to this place called Mount Horeb, and all of a sudden, there's a bush that's burning. Smoke is coming from it. It's burning up, but it's not being consumed. And then he approaches it, and the voice of God comes out of it. And not only that, but the voice of God says, guess what? I'm going to use you to lead two and a half million people. I don't think Moses probably knew it was that many people. Remember, he's been in the desert for 40 years. But God tells him, I'm going to use you to take your people out of Egypt. I'm sure at this point in time, Moses is absolutely, completely astounded and shocked. In fact, let's jump into our notes this morning. We're going to take a look at how Moses responds. First of all, number one, point number one. Moses was constantly reluctant when God asked him to do things because he was so insecure about his abilities or the lack thereof. He was constantly reluctant when God asked him to do certain things because he was insecure about his abilities. Let's take a look at Moses' reaction. In this message today, I want us to specifically look at how Moses reacted to God calling him to do something very special. Take a look at that very next verse, Exodus 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Have you ever said, Who am I to God? I know I have. Who am I, God? You're going to lead me to do this? And it may be something small or it may be something large. But you know that God is asking you to do it, and you respond by saying, who am I? I think we do that a lot more than we'd like to admit. I think that we say that to God a lot more than we'd like to admit. I think that's the reason that the church, not just our church, but the church in general has a lack of volunteers. It has a lack of an army of people to do God's work in humanity on this earth is because so many people say, who am I? Who am I? I'm not equipped for this. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I don't have the abilities. And so a friend 
maybe splitting up with their spouse, and God nudges you to go help with the kids, and you respond by saying, who am I? I can't be used in that way. Or perhaps you're at school, students, and one of your friends comes up to you and asks you something about your faith, and you respond, and you say, who am I? I can't answer that question. I can't engage with that person. I don't want to hear this. Who am I? Or maybe Diane says, we have a need, parent, in Island Kids. And we need you to teach once every six weeks, by the way. And you say, who am I? I can't do that. I can't teach kids. Who am I? Now, at this point, since Moses' first response is such this passive-aggressive reluctance, I I kind of expected in that next period of time for God to kind of say, you know what, Moses? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Who are you? I mean, really? You know, you grew up in the king's palace, and then you kill a guy, and you run to the desert. And yeah, you know what? For the last 40 years, Moses, you've been tending sheep, and you've got the stench of sheep all over you. You've had very little interaction with people. And yeah, I'm asking you to go to Pharaoh and represent me on the behalf of Israel. Yeah, you're right. You know, who are you? Um, Next, who's next in line to save God's people? That's kind of how we expect this to play out, isn't it? We kind of expect God to say, you know what? You're right. I'm done with you. But here's how God responds. He says these words to Moses. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. God, instead of getting angry, instead of acting in some uh, kind of rage, in some kind of... uh, uh, disciplinary action, he says to Moses, I will be with you. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't second guess his man for the job. He doesn't question, maybe it's someone else that's supposed to represent God on the behalf of the nation of Israel to Pharaoh. And so God, in saying, I will be with you, says to Moses, you're my man. You are my man. You may be saying, who am I? to be used by God, but you, Moses, are my man. You are the one that I want to represent me. Now, at this point, I, I know that you know, I'm, Moses is talking to God Almighty, and, and uh, he's already recognized, recognized that he's talking to God Almighty. And, and you know, if I were Moses, I, I would hope that at this point in time, I would say, you know what, okay, God, you're asking me to do this. You're telling me that you'd be with me. You're telling me that, you're, that I'm your man. Okay, I'll go. But you know what? I, I, I think that I probably would react much like Moses did. I probably at this point, as much as I'd like to think that I would react positively to what God has said, I think I'd probably do what Moses did in verse 13. Take a look at Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, that's kind of interesting that he brings up the Israelites at this point, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, this is an interesting leadership moment, an interesting point of leadership crisis for Moses, because here he kind of moves on in his mind to something else. He moves on in his mind to not the task that God asked him to take care of, but he moves on to what are people going to say about me? What are people going to say about the fact that I've just seen God Almighty and that there was a bush and that it was burning, but it didn't consume? 
And what are they going to say when I say to them, God has called me, this guy who's been out in the fields, tending sheep for the last 40 years, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? Who am I going to answer? How am I going to answer when they say, who has sent you? And so God gives Moses the words to say. He reminds him of who he's talking to. And Moses responds by questioning it once again. You know, I, I, I want to be critical of Moses' response here, but, but I can't legitimately be so. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Moses' response, when I hear that reluctance, I kind of connect with that. I, I think to myself, you know, my mind probably would have gone in the same direction. I mean, God was asking Moses to do something that was outrageous. And when God calls us to do something outrageous, or when God calls us to do something simple, often we ask ourselves the question, what are other people going to think? How are other people going to respond. Now, at this point in verses 14 through 21 of Exodus 3, God gives Moses very specific instructions on what to say to the nation of Israel. I I like this, and we're not going to go into depth on this because that's not the point of the message, but I like this because God doesn't ignore Moses's feelings. He understands, he comes to a place of understanding with Moses that Moses needs to be able to tell the nation of Israel who called him. And so God answers Moses in this. And here's Moses' third voice of reluctance after God gave him the very conclusive, very specific, and very understanding response about who to say I am. Moses says this in Exodus 4, verse 1. He says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me or say, the Lord did not appear to you? <coughs> so God gives Moses the exact words to say, the exact things to say, the exact way to answer, and Moses is still reluctant in chapter 4, verse 1. He still says, but what if they don't believe? What if they don't believe? And once again, God is understanding, and he gives Moses some tools to completely convince any Israelite doubters that, God, that Moses has seen God. And he tells him to throw down his shepherd's staff, and it turns into a snake. Man, I'm sure Moses at this point is like, man, burning bush. You know, it doesn't consume. God's calling me. He's telling me to go do this. And now he he wants me to throw my staff down and it turns into a snake. And God says, now pick the snake up by the tail and it'll turn back into your staff. And I'm sure Moses is wondering, yeah, but there's still going to be people who don't believe. And God gave him the ability to overcome that doubt. And he says, take your hand, stick it into your cloak, pull it out and your hand will have leprosy. Oh, come on. Really, God? And Moses does it, and it happens. And he says, now stick your hand back into your cloak and pull it back out, and it was completely healed. But God gives Moses another tool. If the Israelites, if the Hebrews don't understand that, if they're not convinced yet, then take some of the water from the river Nile and throw it on the ground, and it'll turn into blood. And so God meets Moses where his faith ends. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this, Christ follower. He can do that for you and for me. When he calls us to that task, when he calls us to that thing that we think is impossible, that we doubt, he will help you and meet you where your faith is ending. And he will meet you when, where your doubt begins. He will help cover you, and he will help you and give you the tools to overcome it. He does that for us, he did it with Moses, and he'll equip us to be able to not say to God, I can't, I can't.
A few uh, weeks ago, um, we finally taught Sydney, our now seven-year-old, after a few years of not being able to teach her how to ride a bike. And it was on a nice, beautiful spring weekend here on Hilton Head Island. And um, we said, Sydney, this is your weekend. This is your time. This, you're going to learn how to ride a bike. And we're going, she was going to learn how to ride a bike this time. And so we got her on the bike, and she, she kept saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And it took about two days, and she's riding the bike, and she's doing great. But I got to thinking, you know what? As irritated as we as parents get when we hear that response from our kids, is exactly how God responds to us. But he gives us the right tools. He gives us the right tools to be able to cover our doubt. Then we think that the, we kind of get a picture into the real problem that Moses is dealing with. Up to this point, he has just complained, hasn't he? He's just told God, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. But take a look at Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses says to the Lord, Oh Lord, I have never been eloquent. Okay. Now we're getting to the real reason. When I was in sales, they always taught me in sales that when you get a rejection, there's always a reason behind the reason. And I think this is Moses beginning to unpack the real reason he doesn't want to represent God, uh, represent uh, Pharaoh on God's behalf. He says, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, different theologians have differing views on this and what Moses was dealing with. There are basically three different schools of thought here. The first school of thought is that Moses was raised as an Egyptian. And what God is calling Moses to do is to speak Hebrew to the Egyptian pharaoh or to be able to have a good handle of the Hebrew language. And some theologians believe that he didn't he wasn't tongue-tied, that he didn't have a speech impediment. Some theologians believe that it was simply a language barrier and that he couldn't speak Hebrew very well because he was raised as an Egyptian and he was taught in Egyptian schools and he knew that he would have to speak Hebrew. He knew that he would have to speak Hebrew to Pharaoh and on the behalf of the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. Some scholars believe that Moses just was simply not quick minded and that he struggled with being able to have a quick answer to problems he would not have been the person on the debate team and then there are theologians that believe that he simply had a speech impediment a bit like the movie the king's speech and he literally was tongue-tied and when he spoke it was like he had a mouthful of marbles and so there are some people that believe that i think it might have been a combination of all three of those i tend to believe he literally had some sort of speech impediment that he was worried about that he struggled with that he was insecure with, and God was asking him to do the very thing, to be the spokesman on behalf of God. In those 40 years of being out in the desert, don't you think that it entered Moses' mind that, boy, I've had 40 years that I haven't interacted with people. And not only is God asking me to do something I'm naturally not good at, but I have had no experience over these last 40 years speaking to people. Well, God's response is consistent. He essentially says to Moses, I'm the one that gave you your mouth. And he says to Moses, I want you to catch this. Please don't miss this. He says, I will help you and I will teach you. And that's what God can do with us when he asks us to do those great things that we may think that we're not good at. Moses gets really bold and honest with God in his next rejection of what God's asking him to do, his next uh, point of being resistant to God's leading in 4.13. But Moses said, oh Lord, please just send someone else. 
Isn't that great? I just love that. I mean, I love that honesty. And it's almost like don't you kind of wish, you kind of hope for Moses that he had just gotten there sooner. Like God asked him to go to Pharaoh on behalf of him, representing Israel, and, and he would have just said, you know, can you just send someone else? Like just, just get, get right down to it. Can you just send someone else? And Moses just says it finally. He just goes, God, isn't there someone else? Isn't there someone else? And the Bible tells us that at this point in time, God gets angry. But I want you to capture this. That's all the Bible says about that. It says God became angry with Moses, and then he moved on. And there was a point in time there when there were so many rejections of what God was doing. There was so much insecurity that God burned with anger, but he doesn't stay there for long. He helps Moses, and he provides a mouthpiece for Moses in his older brother, Aaron. And so Aaron shows up on the scene, and God essentially says, Moses, this is still your role. You're still the leader. You are still going to be the one that leads the people of Israel out of captivity, but I'm going to send Aaron to help you. And see, even though God burned with anger for a moment, he still met Moses, and he still covered that area where Moses was ill-equipped. Now, the rest of chapter 4 is taken up with Moses going back to Egypt for the first time in 40 years, God dealing with Moses on a personal level on some things that he needed to get right, and then we come to Exodus 5.1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. God asked Moses to be his spokesman on behalf of the whole nation of Israel, and five times Moses tries to let his feelings about his skills, his abilities, and experience keep him from the great job that he had for him. Last week, we talked about how we can't allow our failures, we can't allow our upbringing to be that thing that keeps us from the great things of God. This week, we're learning that we can't let our insecurities, we can't let our feelings of being ill-equipped keep us from the great things of God. God seems to be providing, and it seems now like Moses and Aaron have a clear path. They're just going to go in, they're going to ask the Pharaoh, and he's going to respond. Well, here's how Pharaoh responds to their first request. He tells the nation of Israel, the slaves, that they have to work harder. He tells the people of Israel that they need to work harder. He increases their quotas. He takes tools away from them, and he says, you need to do it faster. And as a result, the nation of Israel, these who are enslaved, have to work harder. And as a result, when they don't meet the quotas, the Pharaoh beats them. He beats them into submission. He beats them, and he abuses them. And that's how he responds. To make matters worse, Moses and Aaron run into some of the foremen that are Hebrew foremen that day, and they strongly voice their displeasure with what Moses and Aaron are trying to do. In, in fact, um, it didn't really seem like that strong of a criticism, but I want you to catch Moses' response in Exodus 5, 22 and 23, and it will lead us to our second point. Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon these people? It is, this is, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not re rescued your people at all. Moses does not give God time to respond. And the second point is, is when tasks seemed, when tasks seemed challenging and bigger than Moses could comprehend, he would blame God. When tasks seemed challenging and bigger than Moses could comprehend, he would blame God. Have you ever blamed God for the, something like that? 
Have you ever blamed God because you didn't think things were going too well? He had you start something, and about halfway through, or three-quarters of the way through, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. You know, we're in the midst of one of the greatest things I think that God is doing in the life of this church thus far. God has raised $250,000 among all of us to work on phase one construction down at mile marker nine at our new facility. It's amazing what he's done in our midst, isn't it? And now that we're within, who knows, 60 days of moving in, we're $60,000 away from our goal, and the cost of things keep going up. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I have times when I want to go to God and go, why, why now? Why now isn't this working out, God? Why, why couldn't you have raised the money all at once and then we move forward? Why? 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 And in those quiet moments in my life, I have moments of blaming God, and then I find myself hearing him saying these words. Because if I had provided everything up front, if it had been easy, you wouldn't have opportunity to trust me even more. And when we get to that point in a job we're doing for God, when we get to that point in a period of time that we're doing what God has asked us to do, and it seems like things are caving in, it seems like the task isn't getting done, and we don't have the ability to do it, instead of blaming God, we ought to trust him. We ought to put our faith in him even more. God's task for you may not be easy at all. God's task for Moses and the nation of Israel of getting them out of captivity involved plagues. We won't go into the plagues, but there were flies and gnats and blood and locusts and hail. And it was awful. It was awful. But God was faithful. And he used Moses, which leads us to our last point. Despised, despite Moses' view of his own shortcomings, God used him greatly to accomplish his plan for his life. To accomplish God's plan. I want you to catch this. To accomplish God's plan for Moses' life. And that plan was that he was going to be the man who led the nation of Israel into freedom. God is going to accomplish his plan. And if he asks you to do something in that plan, if you're a part of that, he's going to use you regardless of what you say. He's going to use you regardless of your reluctance. He may push you to the brink, but he is faithful. He is faithful in his plan We see the plan being accomplished. The the Lord gives Moses encouragement here in chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. And then finally, they they are able to to push things a little bit when they go to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron, verse 6 says, did just as the Lord commanded them. You see, God used Moses in spite of his feelings about his insecurity. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I've seen many people say that that verse gives them hope because their life will just be so smooth. Man, that's dangerous. It says that God will carry it, his work, to completion. He doesn't ever promise us 
that it's going to be perfectly smooth, that it's going to be without plagues, that it's going to be without trials and tribulation. Let's make it personal this morning. Take a look at the end of your notes. No matter how you feel about your skills, your abilities, or your experience, God is able to use you just as you are to do amazing things for him. Each of you are gifted in some area to be used by God. Even if you feel ill-equipped, he can cover those areas. I've never solved a Rubik's Cube. Not once. I had one of these things when I was nine years old. I'm 30 years older than that today, and I've never solved a Rubik's Cube. There are many in my generation that have solved Rubik's Cube. In fact, Felix Zemdeg solved it a year ago in 5.66 seconds. He holds the world record. Can you imagine that? It takes me that long to hold it and figure out which way I should hold it. I have things that I'm not good at. I feel ill-equipped every day. I struggled in school. It took every effort that I could put forth to get A's and B's and, yes, C's. But you know what? I'm not going to allow those things to push me to the point where I look at God and say, I can't. I can't. What's that thing in your life that's pushing you to the point to say, I can't? You can rely on him. If you keep your eyes focused on him, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who is strong. He is the one who is our mighty fortress. And we as Christ followers need to stay strong to be solid in him so that when he asks us to move, we don't say, I can't. Sorry, God, I can't. Father God, help us in our weakness. Help us when we feel ill-equipped. Help us when we Moses, this man who was out in the middle of a desert tending sheep, you used him to move two and a half million people across a sea into their freedom. God, you can certainly use us to help a neighbor, to talk to a family member about you, to help a person who's going through a crisis, to feed someone who's hungry, God, to witness to our neighbors. You can use us to work in Island Kids or in Vibe. God, you can certainly use us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our inabilities, in, despite our experience, God, or lack thereof. You can use us. God, help us to keep our eyes focused on you, the one who is the mighty fortress, who can provide, who can cover our shortcomings. God, thank you that you're using us to accomplish your will, your task. And may we realize what it means that you will bring it, your will, to completion in our lives. Help us to keep focused on you, the strong one. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.